stop whining and pull this car over. I will pull this car over. I am serious. Hey everyone, this is Krista Bontrager, and I want to welcome you to the Route 66 podcast, sponsored by Grace Church of Lindora. And before we get into the text, just a little bit about me. I've been going to Grace since 1973. My mom and I came to Grace and we were invited by Joan and Bill Estep, who still attend Grace. And it's been our home. I went away for a few years to college at Biola and then I went to seminary at Talbot where I worked uh, on some degrees there for about 10 years. And then I I taught Bible classes and theology at Biola University for a few years. And it's just been a great journey for me. My husband and I have been thrilled to raise our children at Grace Church. And I'm glad for the opportunity to be able to bring some of my background and training in the Bible and theology to you, my Grace family. And what a wonderful opportunity it is for us to go on this journey through the Bible together and that maybe I can help be a little bit of a tour guide to point out some attractions along the way and see some sights and help us know when it's time to pull off to the side of the road and, and look at something more closely and just enjoy the view. And that's going to be kind of my role this year as we go through Scripture. So I really hope that uh, you'll get on board and enjoy these podcasts, maybe uh, as a way to prep you each week for what you're going to read and uh, just provide a little tutorial to help make the journey a little bit smoother as we go along. So here we go. The first thing we're going to do is just look and and get the big picture. We're going to kind of pull off to the side of the road here for a minute and just take in the view of what we're going to be reading this week. And then we'll begin to get into some of the details a little bit later. But first, the big picture. Genesis is the book of beginnings. In fact, the word Genesis means beginning. It comes from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, in chapter 1 alone, it tells us about several beginnings. It tells us about the creation of the universe and the formation of the early earth, the appearance of the land and the plants and the creation of the animals and the creation of humans. Later on in the book, uh, we also find out about the beginning of sin and the introduction of sin and evil into this creation. This week, we're also going to see about the beginning of the Jewish people and how they came from Abraham. So many beginnings. That's going to be kind of a theme here in the book of Genesis. So that'll be one thing to look for on your journey through Genesis is the beginnings. What is beginning in this account? Now let's begin to look at some of the details. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we have the creation account, lots of things happening here, just a couple of highlights to hit. One is that humans are the only creatures created in the image of God. This sets us apart from all the rest of God's creation. We are the crowning work of God's creation. Now there's 
something to look for in particular in chapter three that is going to lay the foundation for the rest of the big story of the Bible. And that's going to be one of our themes continually through the year is how do all of the stories in the Bible tell us the grand story, the grand narrative of the story of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter three, you're going to want to look for the curse. And in particular, verse 15, it says, God is speaking. I will put enmity between you. In other words, the serpent and the woman between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This strange little verse that's embedded right in the middle of this curse of the first humans is the foundation for everything that's to come later, ultimately culminating in the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This Genesis 3.15 is the first allusion. It's a foreshadowing, we call it in, in literature, to the Messiah. And we're going to keep coming back to seeing how this grand narrative tells the story of the serpent attempting to strike the heel of the Messiah and how the Messiah ultimately crushes the head of the serpent. It's the age old battle of good and evil. Only in this sense, it's the God of Israel on one side and the old serpent, Satan, our nemesis on the other. Genesis chapter four has the classic story of Cain and Abel, but Here's something to look for that you may not have noticed before. Abel is presented as the righteous son and Cain as the unrighteous. In this sense, each of them is cast in a role. And we're going to see this again and again. Abel is representing the line of the woman, her offspring, that ultimately culminates in the Messiah. And Cain represents the line of the serpent, the one who is trying to kill and thwart the line of the woman. And so when Cain kills Abel, there's the whole sibling brother rivalry aspect to the story, but there's also the aspect of the grand narrative of scripture where Cain is trying to stomp out the seed of the woman so that Satan wants to end the woman's line. So there's no chance of the Messiah ever coming to save his people. Now, when you get to chapters 5 and 11 in Genesis, you might be tempted to call a tow truck because you're going to have to wade through some pretty difficult genealogies, lots of names. Honestly, my view of the names in the Old Testament is just do the best you can and go with it. Be confident because nobody really knows 100% how these names were pronounced anyways. So just do the best you can. Don't get hung up with that. When you're reading the genealogies, try to focus on the big picture. Who's being cast in the role of the line of the woman and who's being cast in the role of the line of the serpent. The key to understanding the genealogies in chapter 5 is actually chapter 4, verse 25. Adam lay with his wife, and she gave birth to a son, and they called him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel. So now Seth is cast in the role of the descendant of the woman in the line of 
the Messiah. So chapter five is Seth's genealogy. And so what we're supposed to come away with knowing isn't so much all of these names and details and years, but that God was preserving a people. He was preserving a group that would eventually give rise to the Messiah. So we want to focus on the purpose of the genealogy rather than all the details of the genealogy. And it also acts as a bridge to get us to the flood and then the story of Noah, son of Terah. Now the story of Noah is familiar to all of us, but here's a, a little something you may never have thought about before. The world has become so corrupt by the time of Noah that God feels like he needs to start over. He needs to do it over. And in a way, Noah is presented as a type of Adam. It's kind of a one big redo. You remember when you were a kid and you're playing ball out in the street, maybe playing baseball and the ball goes foul and everyone yells, do over. Well, that's kind of what the story of Noah is. It's a an Adam do-over, a civilization do-over. So when you read through the story of Noah, especially toward the end, remember back to the story of creation. See how many parallels you can find between the two stories. That'll make it a little bit fun. Again, when you get to the table of nations in chapter 10, don't panic. It's a lot of names. Be confident, say them, move on. Focus on the purpose, not on the names and, and the dates. So the purpose of this account is to do two things. One is, is to build a bridge to get us to the next story of Abraham. So it's got to fill in the time gaps. But it's also to tell us who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Who are the descendants of the woman and who are the descendants of the serpent. The son of Noah that's cast in the role of the righteous son like Seth and is in the line of the woman, the line of the Messiah is Shem. And so that's the line we're going to want to keep an eye on. The other two brothers, Ham and Japheth, they're interesting and, and we can see some interesting names here and where they're from and the origin of certain peoples. But really what we're focusing on is the Shemites, the descendants of Shem, because they are the ones that give rise to to Abraham and the Jews. When we get to chapter 12, we're finally in a realm where archaeologists believe that we can date Abraham pretty solidly at 2100 BC. That means 2100 years before Christ was when Abraham was living. Prior to chapter 12, we're a little bit more sketchy on what these dates are and when these events took place. But when we get to chapter 12, we begin to enter real documented human history. And so that can be fun uh, to make corollaries with archaeology and, and other disciplines where we can begin to bring those things to bear on our understanding of the scriptures. When we get to the story of Abraham, we've arrived at the origin or the beginning of the Jewish people. And you'll see throughout the account how Abraham isn't merely a great man of faith. He's also a, gr a great man who stumbles in his faith. There are many times when he struggles to know what God is doing. He struggles to obey. He makes bad choices and there's difficult consequences. Consequences which have enduring and lasting effects even to our own time. But you can also see how Abraham begins to grow in his faith. And you'll be part of that process, 
part of that narrative. So again, there's two levels to the Abraham story. There's what's happening to Abraham in the text, but then there's also the long range plan of how does this story fit into the grand narrative of the Bible? And how does it tell the story of the ancestors of the Messiah and where he comes from? This will be very important as you read the story because the story of Abraham isn't merely a, a good example for us to follow. It's a story of God working in and through history and in and through the shortcomings of a very simple man, but of gr a man of great faith, but a man who grew in his faith over time. I hope that helps you out with some signposts along the way to look for this week, and it will help increase your understanding of the text. Two points to take away from this discussion. First, don't get bogged down in the details. Just enjoy the journey. You're going in the car, you're looking out the window, and you're watching a lot of stuff go by, a lot of beautiful landscape. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the view. Secondly, Look for the big picture. How does it all hook together? How does this tell the grand story of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent and the great war that is going on where Satan is trying to thwart the efforts of God and kill the messianic line because we're looking forward to that savior and Satan's going to do everything he can to prevent that savior from coming and getting rid of the descendants of Christ is the best way to cut off that effort. But how does God protect that line and help that line to triumph over time? We're going to see that over and over in the coming months ahead. Now, a tip that will really help you is be sure to pick a good translation of the Bible. So I wanted to give a little tutorial about how to do that. Let's say you're going in your, you're looking around your home and you're looking for a good Bible, or maybe you go visit the local Christian bookstore, you're going to buy a new Bible, or you're looking on Amazon for a Bible. A lot of options out there. How do you know which one to buy? Well, one of the first things you'll probably want to keep in mind is the translation that Pastor John reads from from the pulpit each Sunday when we hear him preach. He uses the ESV translation. That's the English Standard Version. And that's a fairly recent translation, but it's a very good translation. It's what scholars call a word for word translation or a literal translation. And what translators do is that they'll look in the original texts and the original manuscripts in the original languages of Greek and Hebrew, and they'll try to find word for word into English a translation that will fit together and, and be as readable as possible. So that's the ESV. Another literal or word for word translation that you may have heard of is the NASB or the New American Standard Bible. And we've had a previous pastor that used that version back in the 80s, if you were here. And that one was very popular for a long while. And But now the ESV has come along and, and, and kind of taken its place in some circles. And that's the one that we're using in our church today. So it might be good for you to use the ESV as you're reading through the Bible, since that's the one we'll be using during the church times on Sunday. 
However, you might also want to sometimes try out what's called a dynamic equivalent translation or a thought-for-thought translation. And the idea behind this sort of translation is that the words from the original languages don't always translate into English very well. And so it's better to have to kind of look at the core meaning or the thought or the idea behind it and then to translate that into English. And that is the technique that's used by the NIV translators, the New International Version, which you may have heard of that one. Or um, another one that I enjoy is the New Living Translation, uh, which is not the same thing as the Living Bible from the 1970s. It's called the NLT, New Living Translation, and it's, it's, a, it's a real Bible translation, but it does a nice job of really putting it into modern day terms. And that's actually the translation that my husband used last year when he read through the Bible for the first time. And it was nice to help him get over some of those those rough moments in, in some of the more difficult passages of Scripture. So that's one that you might want to consult if you're feeling lost. Maybe take a look at the New Living Translation. Now one more tip. If you don't have access to a particular translation, you can always check for one on BibleGateway.com. It's a great website, and it offers free versions of all the major translations there that you can look something up really fast. Another convenient way to get your Bible reading done is by using the YouVersion app. Uh, you can put it on your iPhone or your Android phone. And then you just have your Bible with you wherever you go. So if you're sitting in the doctor's office or you're waiting for your child at their piano lesson, you have a few minutes to yourself, you can look at your Bible and just have it right there with you. Well, I hope that helps you get started on your journey. And I look forward to many more adventures together as we go on this road trip through Route 66. Are we there yet? We'll get there when we get there. <laughs> <laughs>